Welcome to The Philosopher's Nest. I'm Lewis Williams. And I'm Calvin Ostrom. The Philosopher's Nest is a podcast that showcases the work, insights and experiences of graduate students in philosophy. This podcast is generously supported by the American Philosophical Association, the Faculty of Philosophy at the University of Oxford, and Lineker College, Oxford. Today we're going to be joined by Linz Whitaker, a PhD student at the University of Washington. We'll be talking about Linz's thoughts on the admissions process and his valuable work on the admissions spreadsheet, as well as his research on pet food ethics. If, after listening, you'd like to get in touch with Linz, you can drop him an email at lmwhitta at uw.edu. Linz Whitaker, welcome to the Philosopher's Nest. Hey, thanks for having me, y'all. Uh, at what point did you decide that graduate school was for you, and what motivated that decision? Oh, great question. So with respect to deciding that graduate school was for me, I majored in Greek, Latin, and philosophy, so two dead languages and something that makes people angry. <laughs> so when it came to trying to pick what to go and do next, well, the options seemed go try to teach or continue into graduate school. So I kind of just decided to apply, talk to my professors, managed to get into a funded MA program. And if they were going to give me funding to continue to kind of look into questions that I was interested in, why not? And then when it came time for PhD land, I was like, well, why not just apply if I get into somewhere great? And if not, I have some other things I can do. And I got into a really rad institution at the University of Washington, also fully funded. So I decided I'll just keep trudging along. <laughs> Sounds great. My next question is about the admissions process. So we had a recent episode with uh, Mitchell Barrington and a uh, mm -hmm. little sneak peek to an episode we're going to be releasing in a couple of weeks about basically advice for how to get into grad school. But I guess you can kind of guess the question I'm about to ask you, which is how did you find the admissions process? Well, when I was first applying, uh, <laughs> it was a little bit of a hot mess. I really appreciate all my advisors and things of that sort. And unfortunately, I think, and this is something they chat with me about after the fact, it turns out that they were a little bit out of touch with respect to some of the ways that the admissions processes were now, in fact, actually going. So they were like, yes, apply. You have a really great chance. That turned out to be not true. So initially, there was like a lot of hiccups that I ran into applying both with respect to my first cycle, which I ended up getting into the master's program. And then for my second cycle, where I ended up applying to PhDs. And a lot of elements ended up being really unclear. I had difficulty finding certain types of things. Sometimes I would find one thing on the philosophy website, and then the graduate school would turn around and say something completely different. So for me, initially, elements of the application process there were some hiccups. For me, that's also why if, if we end up going towards the invention spreadsheet chaos, why I ended up actually trying to create that. Because on my end, what I ended up doing to try to just streamline my approach was to actually make my own spreadsheet to try to keep track of everything. Because otherwise, deadlines, requirements, types of transcripts, it was all just a little bit of a hot mess, at least the first two times I tried to apply. You mentioned some hiccups when you were, you know, looking into the uh, admissions process in the various schools you were looking at. For, I guess, prospective applicants, what kind of hiccups were they? What, what kind of things should prospective applicants be aware of? Great question. I have a list. So <laughs> when we think about the websites, because I look at usually between 130 PhD websites and then about 100, 105 MA websites, there are some tendencies and trends that I've noticed across a, a number of the websites. This is not to say it happens to all of them, though, just a significant portion. So one of the most common hiccups is the links themselves, where sometimes departments don't have an opportunity to actually go through and audit their links, including their links to their frequently asked questions, the links that, in theory, will link to the graduate school's website with all the application requirements. So I would say 
links that don't work and being able to be resilient and then work around those elements to be able to find the working links or to find the updated web pages can be really important. For deadlines, double checking both the philosophy pages and the department's deadline and the graduate school's deadline. Um, there have been a number of times when the deadlines are actually distinctly different, sometimes by a month or two. And that can be pretty significant if an applicant is looking at the later deadline. And then it turns out that no, 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 deadline was back on December 1st. It is not a January 15th deadline. Um, and also being able to differentiate between is this a deadline for funding or is it just a deadline to apply? And if you have your own funding, you're good, because that is another thing that can happen for at least some departments. The other things to be on the lookout for with respect to application fee waivers or the fee waiver itself, being able to figure out, do I actually qualify for an application fee waiver? Where is the link? What is the deadline? Do I have to submit my actual application to the school an entire month to month and a half ahead of time? in order to actually be eligible for the application fee waiver itself. And also for anybody who might be a DACA or an international student, whether or not the fee waivers are even applicable. Um, sometimes it's really unclear and hard to figure out what application fees are folks are eligible for versus the application fees that are really restricted, typically, at least within the context of the United States, to uh, um, United States citizens. And then probably the last two things that end up being the most common hiccups I tend to encounter on websites transcripts and the good old GRE. So for mm. transcripts at the moment, it's pretty common to see websites and departments say, we need an official transcript. And then you go to the application. The application itself is, please send us a PDF copy of an official transcript, which can be very different, especially if transcripts are sometimes 20 plus dollars, at least um, for some of the institutions I've looked at. That can really add up and that can really make it really difficult for applicants to gauge where they need to actually send the hard copy transcripts that for a lot of folks they have to pay for versus where they can order a official transcript for themselves, make a PDF copy, and then use that for their applications. Because a lot of places will say we need an official transcript, but do they mean an official copy or do they mean a scan? Because um, that has probably been one of the most common hiccups that I've seen, especially also as departments have changed the requirements over time or as the graduate schools change the requirements. And last but not least, the lovely GRE. Do they accept the GRE or not? Who knows? Um, if they do, what's the code <laughs> that they need? Also, good luck, because for some institutions, there's three or four codes. And if you use the wrong one, your scores will not actually get to the institution itself or it'll get to the wrong department. Um, so I'd say for GRE, being able to be really clear about whether or not the GRE is accepted or not can sometimes be a hiccup. And also one of the things that we saw trending about two years ago was the GRE not required language. What does that even mean? Who knows? Because depending on which website you're on, it will mean completely different things. I would say a chunk of the departments, they mean not required, but optional. You send it, we will look at it. And for other departments, they mean not required. We don't want it. We won't look at it. If you set, spend the money to actually send it in, well, that's unfortunate. So I would say with respect to hiccups, those are the most common hiccups. And they are also hiccups that I would say departments are getting more aware of over time. And I've been seeing departments take steps to try to be clear on their pages, just to make it so the applicants don't have to jump through as many hoops, and to also make sure that the departments themselves are getting the actual portfolios and the actual application materials that they want to be using. Mm -hmm. Wow. Okay. Well, that's really informative. Thank you. <laughs> and so to impose some order on the chaos that that can happen, I understand you've been engaged in some really important work, which is uh, partly why we're interviewing you today, which is you've made this admissions spreadsheet. Could you tell us a little bit about this admissions spreadsheet you've been working on? 
Absolutely. So the philosophy of mission spreadsheet, um, which for fun fact was a procrastination project because I really didn't want to write a paper. The goal of the admission spreadsheet is to be able to hyperlink applicants to the specific requirements on the web pages themselves. That way, if there are any updates or any changes, the applicants can actually double check stuff on the website. Um, it's also intended to be able to add elements of transparency into the process concerning both what the requirements are if there's an application fee, what it is, because some of them are around $200 in some instances, how to be able to get an application fee and what the deadlines are for those. Since for historical reasons, that has been a hiccup for applicants and a lot of applicants would apply if they were able to get that fee waived. And also allow for better understanding, I would say, of with respect to the application process, at least, what schools actually are our PhD schools for philosophy? What schools are our MA for like schools for philosophy? While also acknowledging that the spreadsheet itself right now is not entirely inclusive in that respect, all things considered, it has been given my situatedness in the United States a lot easier for me to be able to access information on United States-based programs and also programs in the UK, some programs in Australia, and then a few other programs who have reached out and said, hey, we're in Denmark, but can you put us on there? Absolutely. But I also think that that's a delimitation and also representative, I think, in some ways of philosophy in general, some of the, the ways in which sometimes we tend to trend towards certain understandings of philosophy. But that's a conversation for a slightly different time. But to go back to the application spreadsheet itself, the other part of it also that comes into play, I would say, is once admissions decisions are being made. Because I think that one of the questions folks always have is, when am I going to hear back? When I do hear back, how many folks also have heard back from the school? So what are the statistics? How many applications actually get accepted? How many folks got waitlisted? What type of waitlist? Is there a waitlist? Who knows? So the goal of the kind of decisions portion of the spreadsheet, once that goes live, usually starting in January, is to allow folks to get better information about when they might hear back, though not saying that that's going to be 100% accurate for the predictions, to be able to also encourage applicants to share when they hear back. That way folks will know, like, maybe actually a hiccup happened in their application. Last year, a few folks had things go to spam, and they did not know to check their spam until everybody else is like, but I've heard back. Maybe you should do some outreach to the department if you haven't heard back yet. And to also gather those types of statistics. So I think that there's a lot of efficacy in us adding transparency into the system, at least with respect to the number of acceptances the departments make or the number of people that get waitlisted, just so applicants can also make the best decision on their end about how to parse through the acceptances or the waitlist that they may have to then in turn be able to allow other applicants to make those same types of decisions. How can uh, prospective applicants find this spreadsheet? So with respect to accessing the spreadsheet, it's available in a few different places. So for folks that are on Facebook, the philosophy of missions applicants, I think that that's what we're calling it. I don't know. It wasn't the group I founded, but it has a name of some sort. Um, it's linked on there and it will continue to get linked. That way applicants can access it through there while also finding a community of other applicants and also past recent applicants. It usually gets circulated across a few different like blog-ish websites. So the Daily News sometimes will publish it. I know that the Letter Reports has as well to be able to allow folks that are on those platforms to not only utilize it themselves, but since those typically get looked at by professors and things of that sort, advisors, then advisors hopefully are also kind of filtering it down to the undergraduate and graduate students who are applying. I've also been connecting sometimes with DGS folks and sometimes the administrators and departments to say, hey, this is a resource for transparency. I get zero money for this. So this is not my attempt to get money from your department. But here's something that you can share with your students in the event that they're applying just so that they have access to the resource. So I would say right now it's more so kind of publicly sourced with respect to the distribution. 
Um, eventually, hopefully the APA will get on board with some slightly bigger profiling, but I also think that the APA can play a bigger role in getting better access and kind of just transparency in the processes itself. But right now, Facebook, a few blogs, and Google. And I gather as well as the spreadsheet, you've also been running a survey, which has been directed towards applicants on the admissions process. Um, So could you tell us a little bit about what that survey looked like and what the results looked like as well? Absolutely. So I ran two surveys. Um, I didn't get enough data for the second one, though, to really put together a full report, though. Hopefully at the end of this year, I will have that actually together. It's a little bit out of date now, but hey, COVID. Um, So for the first survey that I ran, the goal was to really have a better understanding of when folks are saying that they're applying to graduate schools, how many are they actually applying to? Because every year we see on the various blogs, how many schools are folks applying to this year? What are the barriers? What are applicants saying? But nobody was actually asking the applicants. And I was like, y'all, we have surveys. Let's do some actual conversations right now. I know we love philosophy. We love thinking about things. And we can also talk to people some of the time. So for the survey itself, I ended up sending it out. And I got around 200 responses. And the responses ended up showing that for folks applying to just MA programs, usually they were applying to around 12 MA programs. For folks applying to just PhD programs, usually it ended up being around 14 to 16 PhD programs. And for folks that ended up applying to both, it ended up being a little bit higher, I think, around probably 16 to 18 programs in total, with a higher skew towards the number of PhD programs that folks were applying to. And then with respect to elements of barriers, the barriers would be much like the things that we talked about earlier, where applicants talked about the application fees, unclear deadlines for international applicants, especially lots of lack of clarity concerning whether or not they might actually be at a disadvantage in applying as an international student. Would their application actually be looked at? Was there a delimitation in the number of international applicants that a department could even accept? Because sometimes departments, they can't say that, or maybe they're not sure about that. But for some folks, that ended up being a really big stressor because they weren't sure if they were wasting money on an application that wasn't even going to be fully considered. So that's kind of what I ended up gathering from that. Most of it was the amount of money folks spend on transcripts, the amount of money folks spend on application fees, and the actual data looking at how many schools folks were in fact applying to. But of course, that changes over time. Um, that was back in 2020. We know that the admission cycle that year looked very different, that some schools were completely closed. So I think it's also an open question and something that moving forward, we can continue to kind of look into of how many schools are folks actually applying to? And at the end of the day, how many would be advisable to apply to? And that was what the second survey was intended to do, was to gather information about results. So there actually is a statistical analysis that we could run. Hiccup is that I don't do statistics, and (laughs) data is fascinating, and spreadsheets are great. But it ended up not quite being in a space where we would be able to kind of further do an analysis with the way that that survey was set up. But that's not to say other surveys wouldn't work. I think there was also some design problems, but that's on me. (laughs) Well, either way, they're an invaluable resource. And I remember looking at them and I'm pretty sure taking part in the admission survey that you ran. So yeah, thanks for arranging all that. It's yeah, it's so useful. And now to turn to the research that you're engaging in right now, it's a topic that's quite original. So what are you writing about for your PhD? Great question. So right now, my intended dissertation topic is on pet food, which I know is pretty atypical, but (laughs) hey, it's kind of fun. Uh, but to give some quick context about why I ended up settling on this con- like this topic, 
it's something that came up when I was actually an undergrad where I was in a ethics of eating class and then also a class called killing things. Um, that is the actual name of the class. We did not actually kill things. I think mm-hmm. the department would probably get in trouble for that. But in taking these classes, we talked a lot about what humans eat, about our consumptionary practices, about how what we eat becomes available for us to eat and I'm on it. And then the professor kind of pointed out because he was a vegetarian that he has cats cats usually cannot be vegetarian and be happy and frolicking. So for me, when I think about what we eat, it seems that there's an additional question that we could ask about what our companion animals are eating and how the food that we feed them also comes to be available. So for my dissertation, I'm going to be looking at presenting a kind of a a taxonomy of pet food, a way of understanding the landscape to better differentiate and determine, are there different ethical questions that we could be asking about different types of pet food? Because we're willing to ask those types of questions about the types of food that we eat, whether it's organic, whether it's like local food, whether it's something that is meat-based or completely vegetable-based. And it turns out that there's lots of varieties of pet food, but right now it would all get lumped together. So the dissertation is intended to furnish a landscape for better understanding where the conversation could go in the future, not necessarily telling us what kind of conclusions we should reach. That might be interesting, but that's not really my project. Also looking at some of the implications that pet food might have on pet ownership, though, because it seems that owning a cat and a dog might be different in type than owning, say, a snake, even just based on the type of food that they eat. Cat and dog food is usually byproduct food. It's the food that various uh, health organizations say is unfit usually for human consumption. I don't think that most of us intend to eat the the rat that the snake is going to eat. There might be some exceptions, of course, but it seems that there might be some differences there that would be philosophically interesting and also might be important when we start thinking about environmental ethics and about a lot of the commitments that folks who are either either vegan, vegetarian, flexitarian, or any of those varieties might have for their own consumption practices and what those might in turn mean for the types of pets that they bring into their homes and see as companion animals. There's also a lot of really interesting stuff about marketing because um, do either of y'all own pets, by the way? Usually I start off with that question. I forgot to ask. Do either of y'all have a pet? I do not. My brother has a dog. Uh, Pretty much the same with me. None on my end, but my family do. Perfect. So I would say with respect to dogs then, because when we think about dog food or cat food, the marketing practices behind it, because folks care a whole lot about their animals. They care a lot about their companions. We're seeing lots more folks get pet insurance for their pets. Folks invest a lot of money, time, energy into making sure that their fluffy, usually furry friend is happy. But when it comes to buying pet food, it's really unclear sometimes what the heck is even in it. Or the marketing practices themselves seem to mislead consumers into thinking that they're buying one thing when maybe that's not really quite what's going on. So part of also the work that I'm doing is hopefully going to be allowing consumers to have better understanding of that landscape as well, and to be able to make decisions that really map onto their commitments. Because if you go onto a pet food aisle, there's a lot of choices, but what do any of the labels actually mean? Who knows? Has much work been done on this in the uh, philosophy literature already? So with respect to philosophy, around 2010 to 2014, the answer would have been no for pet food literature within philosophy. There were some conversations about owning pets, but what I found was only a single footnote in one philosophy book that talked about seafood bycatch and kind of what happened when that catch goes into pet food. So when folks like say catch it off and accidentally. In recent, uh, I would say in recent years, there is now a paper um, about pet food. 
And I would say it's a really, really rad paper. I want to say it's by Jonathan Milgram. I'm probably going to have to Google that a second to double check it because I should know the one paper that exists on this topic. <laughs> um, and it's looking at something that's a little bit different. It's looking at what I believe he calls the vegetarian dilemma, where folks really espouse to care about certain types of things. But then some of the other things that we do seem to be in tension with our other commitments. So right now there is a paper on it. And it's doing something slightly different than what I'm intending to do. And it's also a really rad paper. I was super excited that there was a paper even at this point. So alluding to the fact that there's really like one paper on this subject, I I guess I'm wondering, how do you do philosophy on an issue where there's kind of been so little said previously? I would feel like there's like an interesting difficulty that might arise for the sort of work that you're trying to do. And um, like, I think you said the taxonomy or the framework that you're trying to create. So can you speak to any of those difficulties that might arise? Yes, I can. And I'm also going to correct myself from earlier. It's Josh Milburn. That's who I'm thinking of, I think, or at least that does like the animal levels. Yeah. So it's the animal lovers paradox on the ethics of pet food. So that is the one paper that exists right now. So with respect to some of the interesting components that can come up when trying to write on a topic where there's very little I would say that that's the main thing when it comes to my lit review, when it comes to really engaging with the literature, I'm having to get kind of creative in the types of areas that I'm going into where a lot of the literature that I'm looking at is much broader animal ethics literature, is much broader food ethics literature, because I think that a lot of the frameworks that folks are talking about when it comes to what we eat as humans is applicable to what our like furry, fluffy, scaly companions eat. So it's really taking a look at that type of literature, bridging in some of the conversations, bridging in some of the components, and then also illustrating that, yeah, this isn't something that we've talked about, but in some ways we've been talking about a variety of it, just in terms of what we eat. So I'd say that's been one hiccup. The other hiccup, of course, is an advisor. I love my advisor to death and my advisor does not know a whole lot about pet food, but has <laughs> pets. So I think that that's also a actual an area of, I mean, it's a it's a tension, but it also means that folks can get interested in the topic without having to feel that they know the entirety of the philosophical literature. Because the good news is there's not much, but do you have a pet or do you care about furry, fluffy, scaly, feathery companions? If so, then it might be a topic folks can get into and interested in and something that will be relevant for their lives, hopefully. So most of the hiccup is what literature am I using? How to get creative? Being able to get an advisor, but the advisor can care for different reasons, not just because it's within their area of philosophy. I know you said that your project is more focused on the taxonomy rather than on reaching, I guess, firm and hard conclusions. But just to press you a little bit on the latter, uh, are there any, <laughs> I guess, ethical upshots that you think pet owners should be aware of? I do. So I think that for elements of ethical like upshots, I think that some of the upshots, especially for folks that maybe are vegan or vegetarian, is really being able to walk through those commitments and to ask what those commitments actually entail about being able to have a pet within their home, being able to sometimes wrestle with, um, especially like here in the United States, for cats, at least it's uncommon for cats to be outdoor cats, usually because the cat does not last very long outside. Um, Birds of prey really like cats as do owls and cars, unfortunately. But being able to kind of parse through what does that mean for wanting their pet to be happy and healthy? And are they actually situated to be able to have that pet as a companion in their home, given both their additional, like say, ethical commitments and also really caring for that creature itself. And I would say for, especially for snake owners, it might end up coming down to it of maybe we shouldn't have snakes as pets. Maybe that should be one of the ones that eventually will like just kind of go its own way. I'm not saying murder all snakes though. I just want to be really clear. I'm not saying that we should go kill all the snake pets. (laughs) Bad idea. 
But I think that the ethical upshot might be that we really will have to sit with what our ethical obligations are entailing and to then actually walk them through to the full conclusion, especially if it turns out that the production practices for snake food, if those end up being really ethically problematic, well, that might have really strong implications for snake ownership. And then this is not what you asked, but I think it is a broader reaching thing. When it comes to human consumptions of things, folks can get really wobbly because we don't always want to talk about what we eat. So I think that talking about what pets eat might actually be a way of getting folks involved in the conversation in a way that's less antagonistic, which is going to be seen as something that is separated from themselves in a sense, even though some of the moves and conversations might in turn actually be applicable to what we eat as humans. So in some ways, it's also, I think, a way of getting folks to draw into the conversation and then reflect on their own commitments for what they eat, even if initially they might be like, I really don't want to talk about that. They might be willing to talk about it because of their pet. Yeah, right. That's an interesting way of looking at it. Well, Linz, thanks so much for joining us. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Philosopher's Nest. You can find our website at www.philosophersnest.com. And if you're a graduate philosophy student who might like to come on and join us for an episode, feel free to reach out to us at thephilosophersnest at gmail.com.